Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist based in Los Angeles, specializing in trauma and addiction. Welcome to our podcast, which is called It's Not About the Sex, also the name of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term, sustainable recovery. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical tools toward living a deeply connected life. Let's get started. Marty Simpson has over a decade of experience in the field of sex addiction treatment. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist, a certified daring way facilitator, and a certified partner trauma therapist. She's a trauma specialist who's fully trained in EMDR, brain spotting, neurofeedback, voice dialogue, appsats, and sensory motor psychotherapy. Marty is a very busy clinician. Her couple's training includes the psychobiological approach to couples therapy and relational life therapy. Marty has also studied group therapy with the Group Psychotherapy Association of Los Angeles. A distinguished speaker and educator, Marty has presented at international conferences, associations, and universities. She has also appeared in various media interviews for television, radio, webcasts, and magazines. Some of Marty's webinars and lectures can be found on YouTube. Previously employed at both the Sexual Recovery Institute here in Los Angeles, as well as the Center for Healthy Sex, Marty has a specialty working with partners of sex addicts and couples in recovery. She's in private practice in West Los Angeles and Woodland Hills, and she can be found at www martysimpsonmft.com. I'm so pleased to have my colleague Marty Simpson here with me today. And I just want to welcome Marty and say that I've been wanting Marty to be on the podcast actually since I started podcasting because she is one of my go-to people when it comes to disclosure and partners work with sex addiction. So thank you so much for being here today, Marty. Oh, Andrew, I'm so happy to be here. I just respect your work and the the heart that you bring to the work so much. So thank you for having me. Well, it takes a lot of heart and, and you also bring a tremendous amount of heart to the work. And I know how passionate you are about working with partners and with couples. So today we're going to be talking about what we call formal disclosure. And formal disclosure is something that sometimes can actually be controversial and sometimes can be misunderstood. And so we're going to work today to clarify what formal disclosure really is. And Marty, as a specialist in this, is going to help us understand the ins and outs of how it really works. So Marty, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about how you prepare a couple for formal disclosure and what the setup is to get the process started. Sure. Well, formal disclosure is actually a process that happens over a period of time. Um, as you know, you know, with sexually compulsive behavior or sex addiction or even a single affair, um, there has been a trauma to the relationship and to the betrayed partner. Um, so much of that trauma is about 
not knowing what was happening for their person, you know, not really knowing their person, being lied to, being gaslit, things like that. So in the process of formal disclosure, what we do is we, we seek to right that wrong of not knowing by letting the partner know what the, what their partner has been doing in their addiction or in their compulsive behavior. So the process of preparing takes typically four to six weeks. Um, it really varies uh, based on the couple. It varies based on the different therapists have different ways of doing just the disclosure process. Um, but during that time, the addict is working or the, the person who is betrayed um, is working on compiling a list of the secrets that they've been holding on to um, that are to be shared. And um, they may do things like create a timeline of their acting out behavior. Uh, to put it in context, they may um, work with prompts from the therapist. They'll probably go through their emails, their phone records, their financial records to sort of piece back together the list of behaviors that they have not yet disclosed to their partner. Meanwhile, the, the betrayed partner works with their therapist to really emotionally prepare for hearing this information. So they'll be doing, you know, some trauma work, resourcing, things like that. They also work on compiling a list of questions that they have uh, for the betrayer or the addict. Um, often there are many questions that that partner has, so that that list can be quite lengthy. Um, so the therapist and that partner, I, I typically talk about the betrayed person as the partner. I'll just say partner. And that's, that's what I mean when I say that. So the therapist and the partner will sort of scour that list and make sure that those questions are really the information they want to hear and that they're not asking for what we call the gory details, uh, things that will not be helpful for their healing. And also the Formal disclosure is often followed up by a polygraph. And so we also scour the list of questions for polygraph ready questions. And, and those would be, you know, questions that are more objective rather than subjective, um, because that will make a more, a clearer result with the polygraph if they're having one. So it sounds like not only is it very, very thorough, but you're really methodically helping the individual or the partner decide detail by detail what they want to know, what they don't want to know, but, but more than anything to empower them to ask the questions that haven't been asked yet. Is that right? That's exactly right. They, you know, the, over the course of the acting out behavior, that person has usually gone through quite, uh, quite a period of time where they're, wondering, suspecting, you know, maybe asking questions and being told that, you know, oh no, you're, you're being paranoid, you're crazy, something like that. So this is their opportunity to really, uh, list those questions, you know, again, to be answered, um, and then verified by that polygraph. The other thing that we do is we, we make sure that we are really clear about what level of detail, that person wants to hear. So we often recommend against asking what we call the gory details, which would be, you know, what did he or she look like, you know, the acting out partner or something like that. But they do have a right to know 
um, exactly what happened because it happened in the course of their primary relationship. So they'll make decisions about whether they want to know the type of sexual contact, for instance, if there was sexual contact, um, whether they want to know locations that the acting out behavior happened in, um, things like that. So there's, there's a lot of sorting through and, and thinking about, um, you know, what their system is really prepared to hear and what they need to hear for their healing that goes on beforehand. I see. So what, what I believe you're moving towards in, in our conversation is that we don't want to re-traumatize a partner and we don't want to pour salt in the wound, but we also want to help the partner realize, okay, so this is, this is what has happened. This is the reality of what's happened up to now. And how can we embark on a, a true healing process that's, that's going to be productive and safe for, for everyone, actually? Exactly. It's funny that you use the wound analogy because I use a wound analogy often when I talk about disclosure. Um, you know, I think of it as opening up the wound to clean it out in, so that it can heal properly. Um, we only go into the process of formal disclosure with the intention for healing the relationship. So if somebody's on their way out, if they're getting divorced, they're wanting to break up, we don't recommend it. And we, well, I won't facilitate one if somebody's going to be leaving the relationship. Um, we don't want it to be punitive. We want it to be healing for both parties. And in order to do that, though, we do have to go into that wound and clean it out. Uh, to know what it is so that they can integrate a new reality, a new reality for their self-identity as well as for their relationship. Sure. And and I also really appreciate the analogy of the wound because I, at one time in my social work career, I worked with wound nurses who would go literally go into the wound and clean it out and methodically take really impeccable care of the wound and you cannot just put a band-aid over it. You literally have to change the wound dressing several times a day for weeks and sometimes months. And I think there's a, a strong parallel in what you're saying is that the wound or the wounds of the past need a tremendous amount of love and attention and care. Absolutely. And I, I actually really like what you're adding to my analogy. I hope you don't mind if I borrow it sometimes. Um, but that going back and redressing um, really reminds me of how important it is in the healing process for the betrayer to, to understand that there are going to be times when this trauma keeps showing up. So even after the formal disclosure, it's, it's not a one and done, you know, it's, they, they're, the trauma is going to resurface. And when it does, it's so important for them to take responsibility and be remorseful and not defensive and just really be there as a strong container for the feelings that show up for the betrayed partner. So I like that idea of redressing the wound. Um, and it's important that they go into this process knowing, knowing that and knowing how trauma works that way. Trauma happens. You know, we chip away at trauma. We don't heal it in one session. Absolutely. And so along those lines, I, I am wondering about the impact of the full disclosure or the formal disclosure on the relationship, because at times it must get worse before it gets better, right? Sure. Yeah. Often what happens with the disclosure process the for the betrayer or the addict, 
leading up to the disclosure, they're very anxious. You know, they've been holding on to these um, secrets for so long and they're really afraid. And I will say most of the addicts and, you know, um, people who have been compulsive around their sexual behavior, most of them that I've worked with, and I've worked with thousands, they don't, they don't hold the secret only to protect themselves. They hold the secret also to protect their partners because they don't want to hurt their partners. Um, it's a little counterintuitive, but the, that person often does not intend to hurt their, their partner. And so they're holding on to this information. Um, they're very anxious to let go of it. Then once they do have the formal disclosure session, they actually often will feel a tremendous sense of relief because they've now unburdened themselves of these secrets. Um, meanwhile, the partners, this may be the first time they're hearing about a lot of information. Uh, and so the partner often does take a couple of steps back, but at their temporary step, steps most often. Um, with If they're working with a good trauma specialist, um, they will be able to process the information in a healthy therapeutic way. And like I said, like reintegrate that information into their new reality. Um, but they do take a couple steps back. Usually there's, you know, a bit of a rupture that happens right after the session, but we're prepared for it. You know, we know that that's going to happen. Uh, we take measures if they need to have boundaries or some kind of separation within the house or something like that. We, we set that up. Uh, we help them set that up. The other thing that's really important to mention is that people do this voluntarily. I don't recommend that people do it. I let them know that that's a possibility, but they choose to do it for their relationship. And that's really important to note. Often the addict goes into the formal disclosure a little hesitantly. They're afraid. Um, and it's usually the partner, the betrayed partner who says, I need this to heal. If we're going to try to heal this relationship, then this is what I need. Um, and that's usually how it, how the formal disclosure gets set up. Right. And, and just to circle back to what you mentioned about polygraphs, the average therapist who's not trained in sex addiction or understands the idea of disclosure or polygraphs might have some big questions about why that would be the, the measure taken. So I'm wondering if you could share more specifically what would warrant somebody moving in the direction of a polygraph after a formal disclosure? Sure. You know, betrayed partners, because so much of the betrayal is about the lying and actually the lying and the gaslighting is what they most often, most partners will say that's the most painful part. It's even more painful than knowing that their partner had been unfaithful to them or sexual with others. It's the lying that, that really does the damage, you know, betrayal at its, at its core is an intentional disloyalty and it undermines the, the trust and the confidence in the relationship. And most partners are really trying very hard to be able to trust again. Um, and polygraph happens to be one of the ways that they can get that verification that what they've been told now is true and that they've been told everything that they're asking for. It's not a perfect measure. There's a 94% 
or 96, I can't recall which, um, accuracy. So there's a margin of error. I think it's 96%. I think it's a 4% margin of error when someone's well-trained. But it's the best measure we have to verify that uh, the information that they were supposed to tell, they told, and that they told all of it. So with all of this in mind, the formal disclosure, the possible polygraph tests after the, the disclosure, why would a couple choose to go in that direction versus a more traditional couples therapy type uh, work? I would say they probably want to do both. The ones that choose formal disclosure probably want to do the relational couples work as well. Um, but the first, you know, weeks, months after discovery are more like triage, you know, they're more like crisis management. And in order to get to that deeper, really more vulnerable relational work, um, they really need to get this trust piece back online and back on the, you know, on the rails, I guess. So they, most betrayed partners feel like they cannot do the deeper, more vulnerable work without first creating a sense of safety in the relationship. And the truth, knowing the truth is really the basis of that is the foundation of that new creation of trust in the relationship. So I think most, um, most couples that I've worked with very much want to get to the relational, uh, pieces that they have to work on. Every relationship has relational issues. Um, and, but usually the partner's really not ready for that until they know that they, they know who their person is. There's, it's hard to work on a relationship when you don't know who you're in relationship with. So that, you know, that's part of the reason that we do that disclosure. We can kind of clean the slate, um, have both parties with all the information and then start rebuilding a new relationship from that point forward. And along those lines, I also understand that it really is essential for the partner to feel safe and secure, not only emotionally, but really that their nervous system can settle and that they can feel more at ease with their partner and able to take that next step of what, what you were calling the relational work together. But, but until they feel safe, and, and I guess that brings me really to my next question, which is, um, do couples sometimes not make it after a formal disclosure? Yeah, some do. You know, um, there was research done in 1998. It was published in the Journal of Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity uh, by doctors Jennifer Schneider and Deborah Corley. And they... They did a research study on 82 sex addicts and their partners. Um, and their research, as if I'm recalling correctly, um, about half of the partners threatened to leave, um, but only a quarter of them did leave. So, you know, while we go into this with the intention of healing, um, you know, things happen. The other thing that is cited in the research, though, is that Disclosure didn't keep relapse from happening. And in my experience, the couples who do the formal disclosure, the polygraph, they get their relationship back on the tracks, they're doing their good relational work in couples therapy. Um, those couples, and if the addict is, has got a really good solid, and like you say in your intro, sustainable recovery, 
those couples end up with deeper, more connected relationships than they ever thought possible. It's the couples, the couples that break up tend to be the ones where there's a relapse or where the addict following the disclosure is sort of trying to rush the person along or, or they're defensive, not remorseful, things like that. Um, so did I answer your question? Absolutely. I, I am curious if there was any kind of follow-up on that study because it sounds very hopeful. I'm really pleased to hear that that is the case that a lot of couples stay together and and that there's that that ongoing work that that hopefully they're doing. I wonder if there's any follow-up studies or if you know of anything that can speak to those couples that stay together and and how their satisfaction is, how their level of intimacy, how their level of hope, you know, those kinds of um, more positive psychology factors of not only are we staying together because we think it's the right thing to do or we're doing it for the kids, but we're doing it because we really are devoted to one another and to continuing the work and and the expansion on what uh, starts off with the full disclosure. Sure. And I'm not sure if there are other studies. I do know that I hear a lot of the people that I follow in the therapy world, uh, Stan Tatkin, who wrote a great book called Your Brain on Love. And he's had, he has several um, great books out there. Uh, he's all about creating secure functioning in relationship. Terry Real, who's also another author that people might look up. He's got a good book called Intimate, uh, sorry, Fierce Intimacy. Um these guys are talking a lot about infidelity repair these days. So I think that, you know, there are ways of making an agreement, you know, making your agreements explicitly and being transparent and honest with one another that does lead a couple into being able to create a really safe and secure relationship, even following infidelities, multiple infidelities, I see it in my practice. I, you know, I have couples that I've seen for years following their disclosure and sometimes they, they learn about them. Well, not sometimes they always learn about themselves in brand new ways because of the rupture in their relationship. So often I hear people saying, even partners saying, I wouldn't want this to, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, even my worst enemy. But I'm glad it happened because I've learned so much about myself. So, you know, for the people listening who might be, you know, in in their own pain and suffering because of their own sexual betrayal or the betrayal of their partner, I really want to, you know, let them know that there is hope for repairing the relationship as long as both parties are really willing to do the hard work of looking at themselves and and starting to create a more secure functioning relationship by making explicit agreements and following through with those agreements and working a good program of recovery. Often this kind of rupture, uh, you know, people even say it was needed in order to get them to look at themselves more deeply. So um, there's a lot of hope in this work. I wouldn't be able to do this work if there wasn't hope. Um, if I didn't see people healing and, and creating really nurturing relationships. I don't think I'd want to do this, this line of work, but, but that's something I see all the time. I couldn't agree more. I think that unless we see hope in the work that we're doing, and unless we see 
that um, element of commitment to what you mentioned before, emotional transparency and infidelity repair. Um, I love those expressions because that's the core, right? If, if, if two people are willing to be absolutely real with one another and emotionally transparent, that is where it's at. And, and sometimes people can get there and sometimes they can't. But um, I agree, there's something about just sitting with people and seeing them work really hard to try and find that channel that has been so clogged for so long. And I, I can't have this conversation w without mentioning Esther Perel because her recent book, The State of Affairs, really, I think, drills home the idea that it's not the infidelity that counts. It's, it's how a couple deals with it and how they look at it as an opportunity to grow as individuals and as a couple. Absolutely. I love Esther's uh, word. She says, so important for them to understand, for the addict to understand what the affair or you know, behavior did for them. And it's important to understand what the, you know, infidelities of the affair did to the partner. But, um, she has a more eloquent say way of saying it than I do, but, um, but it is important. We have to understand the impact of this on the relationship and on the partner. And we also have to understand what was happening for that addict. What was happening for that person who was going outside the relationship? Why was it, you know, why were they unable to turn towards the relationship? Um, in that, you know, to, to have their needs met or to cope. So those things are so important. I, I love her work and, uh, she's really such a, a bright, uh, individual and she has a lot of great work out there. And, and in my opinion has opened up a dialogue in a way that was so necessary among, among our colleagues, among ourselves, among our, our clients. And, um, one thing that I uh, wanted to come back to is, and this is something that probably will need to be discussed on another podcast, but the idea of how infidelity does not equate to compulsive sexual behavior. Right. And, yeah. and that's a misunderstanding that, um, that's not, not an easy one to, to totally distinguish, but, but they are, different and yet there's overlap, wouldn't you say, Marty? Absolutely. Yeah. Not everyone who is unfaithful uh, is acting out of a compulsive, you know, set of behaviors. Not everyone who's unfaithful is an addict. Um, I sort of try to mix up the terms betrayer, addict, compulsive, sexually, you know, just because I want it to be inclusive. Everyone has a unique experience of this. And um, different people come to it in different ways. Some people use sex and love and porn and, you know, texting and all that like a drug and other people don't. Um, so it's, it's important to note that while there is a lot of overlap and a lot of the resources are helpful for everyone, um, that there's very different ways that people come to this situation. Right. And, and the whole idea of formal disclosure, just to make sure that we laser this point, the formal disclosure is really set up and was really designed for those who were betrayed by their partner. And generally, that is someone who has identified as either a sex addict or somebody who's compulsive sexually in, in one way or another. 
and and so that's really where the formal disclosure process became more prevalent. Isn't that accurate? I believe so. I, I think it's really something that happens in sex addiction treatment. I don't think that it's something that's generally known. And that's actually, there's a word of caution that you want to make sure that you're working with somebody. If you're going to do a formal disclosure, A, don't do it at home. B, <laughs> it's a whole, it at home, right. it's a process that really needs to be set up with safeties and, you know, a protocol for healing and all that. Um, but B, find somebody who not only has done them, but has done many of them because there's so much to know about the process. So even if you're working with a therapist you love and you want to do this formal disclosure process, you might consider just doing the disclosure process with a different therapist and then returning to the therapist that you have a relationship with. That might be an option, but um, but it is important to make sure that, that the person who's guiding you through the process has done it before and knows what they're doing. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would like us to know about formal disclosure. Well, one thing, the, the thing that I just said reminded me that in this state of California, and I imagine in other states too, and maybe in other countries, there is not a license for a polygraph examiner. So if you're doing a polygraph with your formal disclosure, you want to make sure that you get a recommendation for, you know, from others in the field or, you know, others in the sex addiction treatment world or something. Somebody who is verified, has good credentials, good training. Um, because basically in the state of California, you can buy a polygraph machine and hang a shingle and say that you're a polygraph examiner and know nothing about what you're doing. So you definitely want to make sure that the person that you're working with for polygraph is is somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, and just in general, you know, it's, it's fair and just to be honest with your primary partner about who you are. Um, and the process of formal disclosure writes at least a part of that wrong, uh, that's been done to the partner and it offers a new clean start to the relationship. And, uh, you know, couples that are both willing to invest in their healing and do everything they can to repair the relationship, usually end up with deeper, more connected, more intimate relationships than they had to begin with. Or that, like I said before, like they, that they even knew was possible. Um, and that's really what keeps me in this work. It's seeing those relationships heal and thrive. And that is incredibly meaningful work for me. So that's, that's why I do what I do. That is about all the time we have for today, Marty. I'm, I'm so, so appreciative that you could join us and, and have this time to talk about something that a lot of people really do not understand. And I hope we can have additional conversations on additional podcasts about related topics because there, there's so much depth of, of understanding that you bring to the table. And, and very, uh, I also want to say a very fresh and easy kind of user-friendly approach to what this is all about. And, and I think there's just a tremendous amount for me to learn from you and for our audience to continue to learn. So again, thank you so much for joining us and hopefully we'll see you again sometime soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here with you. I just respect you so much. Thanks, Andrew. You're very welcome.
Thank you so much for joining us today. I was so pleased to have Marty Simpson with us this podcast because she's not only an authority in the field, but she's so passionate and has such a big heart to offer to clients who go through this process. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating and review us so that we can know more about how we can best proceed with future podcasts. Thanks again for being here, and we will talk with you soon.